In this show, we talk a lot about health, how it's the foundation for success in all other areas of our life. We also talk about modern life and the way we need to be strategic and intentional about structuring our days so we're the most productive we can without being sidetracked by social media or too many emails. We also talk about how modern life is set up to take away from your health if you're not paying attention. You need to make sure you increase the amount of natural light that you get in the morning and stay away from the artificial light at night. Just to give an example, today's interview is going to be about the health of something much bigger, our economy, how it's structured. And to do that, I have an amazing guest for you. His name is Douglas Rushkoff. He's a professor of media theory and digital economics at City University of New York. He is the best-selling author of Present Shock, as well as numerous other books. He has been named one of the world's 10 most influential thinkers by MIT, and he's here today to talk about his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. And in this book, he questions the deepest assumptions that we have about our modern economy and how we need to take an intentional approach to create a more human-centered world. In this interview, you're going to hear Doug's optimistic and pragmatic perspective on how both businesses and consumers can reimagine today's current economic system in the digital age so that more people can prosper. And while this is a bit different of the usual interviews I do, I wanted to bring this conversation to you because it's one of the most important conversations to have, especially when we're talking about the health, the health of our communities, the health of our countries, the health of our world. So without further ado, I give you the interview with Douglas Rushkoff. Doug Rushkoff, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Great to be with you. Yeah, it, it's such an awesome occasion because uh, like I showed you before we hopped on, I have a 15-year-old copy of your book, Media Virus, so I've been a fan of yours for a while. But if people aren't aware of who you are, if uh, they haven't heard your name or haven't read one of your books before, can you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Gosh, I'm actually uh, an old theater director who got disillusioned by the very one-way nature of theater and how expensive it was for people to come see plays. That was like in the late 1980s. And uh, my weirdest friends got involved in the internet and the, the very beginnings of the internet and technology. And I kind of followed them to California to see what they were doing and ended up being really one of the first people to chronicle what was about to happen with the net and interactive culture and hypertext and video games and all sorts of things that were just emerging like virtual reality and you know spent a few years being the person who'd be laughed out of the editor's office for suggesting that people might be using email and should find out what it is to being the person who apparently figured out that this was going to happen so uh, I was uh, and I still am an advocate for technologies that help people and communities do things 
and a critic of technologies that really are aimed at taking those abilities away. Yeah, and in addition to all that, you're you're like the best-selling author of Present Shock as well as a dozen other books on media technology and culture. You're also a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queens College, City University of New York, and you've been named as one of the world's 10 most influential thinkers by MIT. And like you mentioned, you were the guy who got in before anybody knew what was happening with this idea of digital information, digital technology. And as you said, you're an advocate for it. But as your book, Throwing Rocks at Google Bus, as I'm sure what we're going to get into, you have a lot of criticisms about it as well. One of the most fascinating parts of your book is the story you tell of how modern economics came to be. Before we get into all that, can you talk a little bit about the book, what it is and why you wrote it? Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to do is to show people that the current state of affairs, this really as yet, you know, unequal and unrealized and really poorly distributed set of spoils from the digital economy isn't necessary. You know, that it's really just the way we're programming it. So, you know, innovations like smartphones and the net and the World Wide Web and all these great, they, they really could be terrific opportunities for a very wide set of people to participate more effectively in business and economics and wealth. And the problem is that the, the people who started these companies, the first companies of the internet age, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter, they really surrendered their companies and their visions to the very oldest way of doing business, this old kind of financial capital model. And what they've done is rather than really bringing us in to a, a digital age where a lot of people can create and exchange value, what they've done is just amplified the values of the industrial age, the one size fits all. Let's extract as much value as we can from the land and extract as much work as we can from people. You know, this very old way of looking at things that it's all about growing companies really large in order to pay shareholders, but not really thinking about how do these companies serve people or neighborhoods or workers or anybody else. And it's just reached a breaking point where not even those businesses, the, even the big businesses can't stay alive by doing that any longer. Yeah. And you painted this picture in the book where nobody's quite happy. The 99% aren't happy. The 1% aren't happy. Pe the, on the 99%, people are struggling to find jobs, struggling to earn a wage that affords them the basic living essentials, while on the other side... Like you mentioned, these companies like Facebook and Twitter have kind of sold out and 
went public and they're beholden to their shareholders. And so they've lost control of their companies to, to the shareholders. And they're just forced into this incessant growth model that is, uh, like you said, extracting value out of people and not really creating that much in return. We're all stressed. We're all <laughs> trying to figure out how to be happier in this digital digital age with all the opportunities, but it seems to be taking us away. And, and as I alluded to earlier, you painted the picture of how this came to be. You talked about how there used to be guilds and people work for themselves. And then that all changed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I find that story fascinating. I've, I've never heard anybody share that story the way you did. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, what happened for me was I, uh, you know, I was actually looking at the problems that Twitter was facing, you know, that here's a company that makes $500 million a quarter. It's $2 billion a year. And it's considered an abject failure by Wall Street. So like you say, this app that currently doesn't really ask a lot of us. Twitter's pretty easy to use. You can tweet your thing, read some things, and go, go home. It doesn't follow you around. It's not like Facebook that takes over your life. But it only makes $500 million a quarter. And the investors consider that a big problem. So they're going to make Twitter change. They're going to force Twitter to be some horrible thing. They're, it's going to have to pivot, as they say in the business, to some other thing and become a video company or a data mining company or some horrible thing and probably won't succeed and it'll end up failing. So here's a company that's worth half a billion dollars a quarter that's considered to be failing, that's laying off employees now and trying to cut corners in order to please the shareholders that you're talking about. So what I wanted to do was really figure out where did this come from? Why did they feel obligated to do that? Why did Twitter need to sell itself and go public? Well, it was because it was, you know, pleasing its earlier shareholders who were pleasing earlier shareholders. And these people who put in a million or a billion dollars into that company they don't want to just see returns. They want to see a hundred times what they put in. And the only way to do that is for Twitter to become this thing that it can't actually become. So it's going to destroy a lot of lives and, and, and lay off a lot of people and ruin a brilliant app. So I wanted to see where did this come from? Where did this assumption come from? And so what I needed to do is go back and really look at the origins of capital. You know, where did this model get started and where the people who put the money in are valued so much more than the people who put the work in or the people who invent the thing or the people who give the land and the resources for that to happen. And that turns out goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. You know, in the in the late Middle Ages, the middle class got really wealthy. It was really the biggest rise in the middle class, bigger bigger in absolute terms than the rise that happened in America after World War II. It was just tremendous. These people who had been peasants under the lords of feudalism, you know, just, you know, uh, tilling the soil and giving all their crops to these horrible guys, um, these people started trading between each other. You know, they had little technologies, they had little workshops, and they made stuff, whether they're making shoes or growing chickens or making windmills and uh, grain and all sorts of things, they would go to the market and they would trade in a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace that looked, to us, it would look something like Etsy or Burning Man or an online favor bank. You know, it wasn't barter per se, but they had local currencies, what they called market money that they used. You didn't collect market money. It wasn't really good for anything at the end of the day, 
but it was really good during the market as trading. It was almost like getting poker chips at the beginning of a poker game in order to figure everything out. And then at the end, you figure out who's got chips and who gets value. So it was a whole different way of thinking about money. But the problem was, well, it was actually the good thing, was that everybody was getting wealthy. You know, the middle class was really, really rising very, very fast. And the aristocracy was upset about this because the peasants had always depended on them for everything. And now the peasants were doing well by themselves. The aristocracy were getting relatively less wealthy as the middle class and the merchant class rose up. So they instituted a series of laws, really, of, of financial innovations to prevent all of this economic activity. So one of them was central currency, where they said that, you know, now you're not allowed to trade amongst yourselves unless you borrow our money from the central treasury in order to do that. So this was a great way for people with money to make money simply by having money. So now people weren't allowed to trade using these local, highly, highly portable currencies. And instead, they had to borrow this stuff and then pay back up to the central bank. And that meant now the economy has to grow because in order to pay back more money than you borrowed, you need to have more. You need to have a bigger economy. So that's what led to this economy of speculation and growth that we're living in. And the second innovation they came up with was what they called the chartered monopoly or what we currently call the corporation. The chartered monopoly meant no one else was allowed to do business in an industry except the person that the king or queen dubbed the official her Majesty's official jam maker, Her Majesty's official shoemaker, Her Majesty's official oat mill. So now, if you were in that business, you couldn't work in that business anymore. You had to go be an employee of the person who got that official decree, and that person would then deliver money up to the aristocracy in, in return for that, for that monopoly. So those two themes, those two biases or commands ended up coming down to us today, that we have to grow businesses, that businesses grow in order to make money. It's not about the revenue, it's about growth, so you can deliver it to your shareholders. You know, that's the legacy of central currency. And second, that you need to create monopolies in order to do business, which is why you see a company like Uber isn't just happy to uh, uh, be one of many share writing companies. Amazon isn't happy to be one of many book companies. They have to get an absolute monopoly in whatever their industry is, so then they can use that monopoly to leverage into another one and another one and another one. You know, and that's the landscape we're in. And it ended up really amplified and exacerbated by digital technology when. I believe if digital technology were used properly, it would help undo some of these problems rather than exacerbate them. Yeah, I found that story so fascinating because so many of us, we are born into this world, especially if you're here in the U.S., and you kind of take things for granted. You go to school, you get a college education, hopefully, and you get a job probably in a corporation or you start a corporation and then that's just what you do. And nobody has ever, nobody I know, and I've talked to a lot of people and I, I train guys who started their, their own multi-million dollar corporations here in, in Miami Beach. And I've just never heard that story. It was fascinating. And that has led us up to, like you said, this situation today where people like you seem to have more of an optimistic view of what technology was going to do when I first started reading your books 15 years ago. 
And now, like you said, it's kind of exacerbated the underlying values that the industrial revolution kind of had, the industrialism and central currency and and the idea of uh, corporations. And so can you talk about the situation now where talk a little bit about the problems, what are going on, what is going on with technology and how it's affecting us. You talk about big data, you talk about how there's a growing gap between the haves and have nots because technology is exacerbating it. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly is going on? What do we need to know about to understand this modern digital world that we live in? I mean, most simply... When uh, digital technologies emerged, uh, we all thought they were going to make more time for us. You know, we'd be able to work at home in our underwear in our own time really efficiently and then have more time to play and make love and walk through the woods and do all that other stuff. And it was sort of starting to work out that way. But big business really saw in the Internet something very different. You know, and this was partly the vision that was espoused by, you know, Wired magazine and the other stock market magazines of the of the early 1990s, that the Internet, rather than being a boon for people, you know, it's the same as what we were just talking about, rather than being like, rather than promoting the bazaar and the exchange between people and, and all the ability of all these small businesses just to get online and do stuff, it became a, a, a new way for big business to extract time and value out of us. So instead of having an internet site that you can log into, do your business, log out of, and go away, you end up with a cell phone or a smartphone that's strapped to your body and pinging you every time there's an update or, or Facebook or a tweet or something. So you live in this state of kind of perpetual emergency interruption, always not just addicted to, but indebted to the networks to, to be available to them. And so we're online 24-7, whether as, as consumers or producers or investors, it's as if the net just created kind of more virtual real estate through which companies could be with us. So you don't have any time that's not connected to the market in one way or another. You're either producing or consuming, or even if you think you're not, you're leaving a data trail behind you that's of value to Facebook or Google or somebody else. You know, every all of your emails are being read and concatenated. Your the news feed that you look at is custom tailored algorithmically for you to induce you to buy more things and click on certain things and have certain behaviors. So it ended up not being a world that we as individuals are even in charge of, but a world in which we are increasingly programmed by companies and their technologies. And it's not fun for anybody, even the CEOs of those companies who we want to say, oh, that evil guy is programming you and taking more of your time. He has to. He's got to meet a quarterly figure of growth, which is why I'm trying to not attack them. You know, when I say throwing rocks at the Google bus, I don't mean we should do that. What I mean is, is where this is the state 
of anger and dismay. This is the stalemate that we're all in. And throwing rocks at the Google bus doesn't do anything because the people on that bus, they're just trying to get jobs. You know, they want to work for two or three years as a programmer before they burn out. And their bosses are just CEOs who are trying to meet shareholder demand before they get fired because if they don't have the right quarter over quarter growth, their company gets taken over. So this is a situation that's not tenable for any of us. We're making all of our lives less fun. I promise you, the shareholders, the stock traders, they're not having fun. They make a trade and they end up being uh, shortcutted by algorithms that are designed just to prevent them from getting their trades through. So, you know, nobody's having a good time in this. And it's just as easy to unwind this as it is to wind it up even further. Yeah. And, and let's get into that because, oh, there's so much in this book. And if you're listening right now, I highly suggest that you get Doug's new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, because although we talk a lot about health on this show, a lot about personal development, understanding the economy that is affecting you all the time, the digital economy, how you're wired in, what companies are doing with your data, what Facebook is doing when you're liking and, and using those new emoji icon things that they just put out, what they're doing with all that so you can have better control with this new understanding. But Doug, man, okay, so you said nobody's happy. And I can speak to that personally, because I work with a lot of these guys, although not only one of them has a publicly traded company. But one of the huge issues with them is that they don't have any time. And it's like, come on, man, you're not going to, I do personal training in, in uh, Miami beach. This is the first time you and I talked, but it's like, if you're the king of your corporation, you're the CEO, it doesn't get any higher than you. And you can't make an hour of time for yourself to, to exercise when you're on the road doing these meetings. Let's talk about what you propose to take action in a different direction so we can all be happier. Well, you know, when you talk about something like, uh, you know, Facebook and tracking your data and doing all this awful stuff, I don't think that they originally intended to do that. You know, you look at a company like Twitter, it was pretty successful, you know, at $2 billion a year revenue. It was pretty successful without doing that stuff, right? They just let people broadcast 140 character messages and they did well. But the problem is because they took venture capital – they had to have an IPO, and because they had an IPO, you know, a publicly a, a public offering. Now they've got to earn even more. So they're going to have to now go to all those meetings, have very little time for themselves, and take what was a success and turn it into something else. Right? That's going to be their job, and it's painful for them because they're killing their baby. Right? They're killing this beautiful, successful company. Now, I mean the. The moment they killed it was when they took the venture capital to begin with, was when they thought that they had to grow, was when they thought that they needed that investment in order to get to the next phase, rather than just going nice and slow and sure towards a, uh, a better outcome. You know, almost all of these companies took money at valuations that were much higher than they could justify, and they've ended up you know, in this bad place. So they're going to kill their businesses. And then other people are going to come up and do those original business plans, but without taking all that capital, because it's actually really cheap to make something. And you can scale up really slowly on something like Amazon Cloud without having billions of dollars. So it'll be interesting to see 
when these companies end up being replaced by smaller, leaner, more resilient successors. But what companies need to do now, and this is this is as true for, you know, I've talked at places like Coke and Pepsi and IBM and all these giant, giant Fortune 100 companies are just as addicted to growth as the dot-coms and the little venture companies. They are stuck. I, I gave a keynote at one of these places. That it was a Fortune 100 company, and they had their employees shouting, you know, like it was like 5.3, 5.3, which was the percent growth that was their target growth for that year, that they weren't satisfied with 4.7, which is what happened the year before. Now they're going to go to 5.3. And I got up there and I said, Jesus, if you guys are one of the 100 biggest companies in the world and you need to grow 5.3% in order to be okay, then there's a real problem here, right? So if even they have to grow that much, then they can never get on top of it. The fact is not everything in nature grows forever, there's a point. You're a trainer, you know. Even even a muscle man, eventually, you get to a point where you get so much muscle, you can't move. You can't deploy your energy. There's a point of diminishing returns, unless you're doing it for show, right, where you can't bend your arm anymore, I would think, because there's so much muscle piled on it. There's kind of an optimal place that you can get. But these corporations don't understand that. They just grow and grow and grow and grow. And the problem with that is they actually become weaker when they grow that much. It's not like it's getting stored in muscle. It's getting stored in fat. They're obese in this unhealthy way. And over the last, I mean, this is even before digital, over the last 75 years, corporate profit over net worth has been going down. Mm. Right? That means that the, they've gotten really good at collecting money, but worse and worse at making money with the money they have. That's the same, you know, as stored in fat, that it's not usable money. It's money that's stuck and it's money that could be circulating in the economy. This is money. This is why everybody's poor. It's because the corporations have sucked up all the value and haven't left people the money they need to do simple transactions. When you use that analogy of storing fat and being obese, I can't help but to draw the parallels between the fact that the most the a good percentage of the United States is overweight, obesity is an epidemic, and it seems like there is something underlying all this consumption of food, consumption of goods, and the addiction to growth. What are your thoughts on, I guess, the underlying psychology behind all that? Well, it's market psychology. I mean, the market needs us to consume more and more and more in order to grow. So if you share a lawnmower with your neighbor, that might be good for you. It might be good for the environment. It might be good for your community relations, but it's bad for the lawnmower company because the lawnmower company wants to sell more. And you can even argue they're going to start laying people off if you start sharing your lawnmowers. So sharing lawnmowers, is that patriotic or unpatriotic? Is it good or bad? I mean, I'd argue it's nothing but good. The only reason it seems to be bad is because we are addicted to an economic system that requires growth. So sure, you want to get people consuming more. We do consume more. We, we have storage units is one of the biggest growth areas in America because people have more stuff than they can fit in their houses. And this is not, you know, stuff that's making them happy. This is just 
stuff that they're accumulating and then responsible for, and then they get to pay upkeep on it. It's bizarre. And yes, the market does better in a world where we are obese, because not only are we obese, but now we're buying big pharma products for our diabetes and for our heart conditions and for our cancers. It's a morbid scheme for economic growth. It's the one that we're in. You know, it's, and, and no, it, it does not favor thin people unless they're spending a lot of money to be thin, you know, getting tons of diet products and lean, uh, <laughs> you know, those great uh, protein, lean protein powders. Yeah, and, shopping at Whole Foods. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, and I'm as guilty of that. I buy all that Vega powder. Sure. You know, uh, it's expensive. It's good though, right? I mean, pea protein, and then you got to how much research and do you have to do to make sure you have a company that's sourcing all of its stuff from, you know, without growth hormones and doesn't have mad cow disease in it. You know, your industry, you know, I mean, full well. There's a there's a ways to make a lot of money in that. But you look at what you're doing. You're doing what you do, and you still do hands on training, right, with actual individuals. Yes. You know, I still do. Not for much longer, Doug. I'll be doing a lot of speaking and more education. But yes, I right. still do train. And it's still possible. You know, you can still have a sustainable life, a sustainable income if you're good at what you do, you know, training people. And sure, you'll do rich people for private clients and then poor people can do classes so that they can subsidize one another's education. You know, there's ways to make it work without necessarily becoming, you know, a holding company of other trainers, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Well, let's get into that because I, I know you have another call coming up, although I hope this is the first of many interviews that we do together because I'm such a fan of your thinking. You you really take a different approach, a more thoughtful, nuanced approach to understanding these things. But let's spend our remaining time on some practical things, because if I'm a listener right now and hearing this discussion, I'm just like, oh, yeah, well, I, I go to work. Uh, my, my boss requires more work out of me or I'm a business owner and, you know, I got to get more. I got to extract more value out of my employees to make more money. And yeah, I definitely if I sell lawnmowers, I definitely don't want Bob sharing his lawnmower with John because, you know, I need to sell lawnmowers so I can make a profit, so I can pay my rent, so I can raise my family. What are the solutions that you are proposing? What can you share with us right now? I mean, it obviously, it's a lot of people in a lot of different positions. Whether you uh, uh, are in some big company, but you're if you're allowed to go to meetings, you know, in those meetings, you can begin to make suggestions for the kinds of things that will make the business better in the long run. If you're working for yourself, you can think twice about what sort of investment you take from other people and what that's going to obligate you to do. In the simplest terms, I guess it's how do you make other people rich? You know, the, the traditional approach to interacting with a market is looking at how are you going to extract as much as you can from that market until you kill it. You know, that's what's happening to a lot of places where Walmart is operating. Walmart's bankrupting the whole community 
and it's killing its customer base, and then they have to close. But now there's no longer any other stores there, so people are really in trouble. You know, so they have to start back from, from square one, like they're in the 1800s, and get a pharmacy and get a drug. Wow. You know, you know, it's happening because they, they suck it dry, right? Walmart acts like a vacuum cleaner. So if you were in meetings at a company, you could say, well, look, don't we want to make the community where we're operating more wealthy so we have wealthier customers? And what would that look like? You know, what does it look like to actually promote the value creation by other people? What if Walmart had one shelf of the store dedicated to locally produced goods? So, no, it's not stuff from China that you can do the, the traditional, you know, Walmart profit margin on, but stuff that's actually going to help make people wealthy. What if a supermarket gives its... Uh, it's parking lot over to a farmer's market on the weekend. You know, yes, it's your competitor, but it's also um, part of your community. And then you could take the unsold goods and sell it on your shelves, and you'll be seen less as a foreign enemy than as a local enabler. What if a bank, instead of just doing loans and as cash to a business, what if a bank also enables local crowdfunding so that it would give maybe $50,000 to a restaurant trying to do an expansion and help facilitate that restaurant raising the other 50000 from from its community. Now, these are sort of easy things that you can do. You should look at making your employees owners of your business. Now, that's not a difficult thing to do. Treat your business like a family business and have people come in who are willing to look at it in that long-term way. You know, family businesses do better in the long run than shareholder-owned businesses. They don't boom as much in bubbles, but they don't fall as much and nearly as much in downturns. Because of the relationship that they have with uh, their employees, their customers... Yep, and because of the kinds of investments they make. You know, uh. they think of, you know, there's two ways to think of your business. You can think of it as I want to extract enough money from this business so my kid has a good cash inheritance. Or you could think I want to make this business strong enough so my kid's going to have a powerful income generating machine when they're of age. They're both viable strategies, but one is giving them something that's alive. The other is just giving them a piece of money that's dead. You know, and if you run the company in that family business way, whether or not it's your family, it does better. You know, there's a company that's putting Walmart's out of business out in the West. It's called Winco, and it's a uh, it's a big box you know, grocery chain, but it's owned by the employees and it doesn't have shareholders to deal with. So it's funny. You think of Walmart as the most lean and mean way of doing a company. It is, but it does that by cutting the employees out of the value equation. What about cutting the shareholders out of it? You know, that's the best discount of all. (laughs) You know, so now a company like Winco doesn't have to pay 80% of its revenue up to long distance shareholders who do create no value. Instead, it gets to pay all of its value back to its actual workers and to its community. So it pays its workers more and it makes more money and it has better prices. So it's kind of unbeatable that way. What I hear you saying, though, is although there are a lot of negative things out there and definitely this extractive growth model that most corporations have is taking its toll, and that seems to be the dominant force out there in the economic landscape, but there is a counter to it. 
And there's people, uh, the Winco, like you just mentioned, I know you're a fan of eBay, peer-to-peer sites like that, where we're doing business with one another. Are you optimistic about the future? What are your thoughts on the direction that you see us going? You know, it's hard to say. I would say, you know, it's possible that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. You know, as these companies you know, suck more and more value and make it harder and harder for people to transact. You know, when they take all the chips off the table, it's hard for you to buy something from me or me to buy something from you. You know, that's why you've got to go to, uh, you've got to go to Wall Street traders to find people who have enough money to get trained because no one has the cash. They all have abilities. They could fix your refrigerator. They could babysit your kids. You know, they could do your taxes, but you know, you don't have money to pay them to do your taxes and they don't have money to pay you. The only ones who have money are the ones who suck the capital off the off the board. That could make things get appreciably worse before they get better. But the strategy for preventing calamity is really the same one as preparing for calamity. And that's, you know, learning to depend more on your own abilities. It's goods and services that you can create yourself. You know, the the craft businesses are not just some artisanal, you know, coastal, la-di-da, liberal, leftist, cultural, creative phenomenon. You know, people actually making and doing things is nationwide. It's red state as well as blue state. It's NASCAR as much as it's gluten-free muffins. It's crafts and Martha Stewart and making clothes and building homes. You know, the, the more connected you are to actually doing something, the more resilient you'll be. You know, the further off into a cubicle doing some bizarre specialized you know, mortgage application evaluation task, the less resilient you are, the less prepared you are for the kind of instability that we're in or that or that may be ahead. I do think this is a great time to learn things, to learn how to do stuff and and to be ready to uh, you know just begin to experiment with some of the stuff that's a little scary to you now, like local currencies and and favor banks and online trading and things. Accept the truth that all you need for an economy is people with needs and people with skills, and they can interact with each other. You don't necessarily need a bank to lend money to a factory, you know, to come to your town and employ people making stuff that nobody really wants. That's not the way to grow an economy. You know, the way to grow an economy is to circulate value between people. You know, and that means investing locally. Look at what's going on in your town. Who needs help? You know, invest with your time, invest with your money. Every dollar that you put into a business on your main street is not only going to return faster because you're buying shares, you're buying participation at the wholesale level rather than the retail level on the stock market, but you're making your main street better, which increases your real estate value, which makes your tax base better, which makes your schools better. So you start seeing the same dollar of investment doing 20, 30, 40 things instead of just one. You know, and we end up experiencing wealth from the bottom up rather than depending on wealth from the top down, which doesn't really happen. Wow. Powerful words. If, if you want to hear more from Doug, 
I highly recommend you check out his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. You can find more out about Doug at rushkoff.com. That's R-U-S-H-K-O-F-F.com. The link will be in the show notes for this episode. Douglas Rushkoff, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and most importantly, your time today. We learned a lot and can't get wait to get you back on here to dive into some of the other things that we didn't have time to go into today. Um.